the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. I think I said this at Christmas, but whenever we come to Christmas and Easter, it's really important that we ask the Holy Spirit to give us fresh insight and fresh perspective on passages that we know really well and passages that we have heard often. And, and I, I'm just struck again this year, this is how many years I've been in ministry, that, that these are just amazing, powerful accounts of God's grace and God's mercy. And we never want to take them for granted. We never want to come to these texts and kind of be like, oh, again, it's, it's Palm Sunday and it's Good Friday and it's Easter and I've, I've heard this before. We've probably all studied and heard messages about Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. And we know about the crowds and how they were waving palms like we would if they weren't in Brooklyn and, and were shouting Hosanna, which means save us, save us now. So the people were, were seeing Jesus, and, and we see the compassion. We know about the compassion of Jesus. As he sits on that donkey, and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem as he prepares to go to the cross, and he prepares to defeat sin forever and to, to save us forever. So this morning, I want to try to take a different approach. Holy Spirit, help us now, as, as we really see some awesome symbolism in those three truths. And I want to focus at the end on Jerusalem, which will give us insight into the, the world's response to Jesus and to our own lives. So let's read the text kind of in sections this morning. Let's understand each one and kind of take apart each one as we go. But start in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. After Jesus had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on, which no one yet has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory on the highest. Now, whenever we think about somebody who is, is powerful, someone who is influential, um, someone who literally, by uh, their resources, their personality, can change the course of people's lives, we, almost, we also usually see them presenting themselves in kind of the strongest and, and most commanding way. Sometimes it's even kind of intimidating. Everything is designed to project authority. Everything's designed to project leadership and, and power. So there are big cars, and there are big bodyguards, and there are big weapons, and there's big promotion. Now, ironically, as we look at this in terms of like uh, uh, politicians and entertainers and athletes, they're usually the same people who kind of expect uh, that we should yield power and we should give money to continue to allow them to stay into power. 
And they're also the people who preach to us the importance of sacrifice and kind of giving up our rights while they uh, refuse to do that, while they don't show any degree of humility or any degree of, of sacrifice themselves. And they tend to use the same things that they condemn that they tell us we shouldn't have. That makes sense? You're with me, right? Now, if there was anyone who should have and could have legitimately taken the position of power and the position of dominance and the position of authority over people, it was Jesus. God in flesh, the one who's perfectly justified to say, everybody has to worship me because I'm God. And because I've already proven my deity, I've already proven my authority over creation, I've already proven that I am the Lord of all, that I'm over mankind, that I'm more powerful than sin. I can righteously overthrow these kingdoms. I can righteously take my place on the throne. I can command Rome to be gone with the word of my mouth. I can command everybody to obey and follow me because I'm God. He could have done that. And yet, if you look at the text, we have this picture of the only one who has that kind of power, the only one who has that kind of right to declare himself the authority is coming to Jerusalem on a young donkey. Even the way the cult's secured, even when Jesus says, hey, go into the next town, and you're going to find a donkey that's tied up, and I want you to unloose him and bring him to me, and if anybody says, why are you doing that, you just tell them that the Lord has need of him. There, there's no powerful stallion, there's no white uh, horse that's uh, got epaulots on it, and it is all decked out, and, and is royal, and to bring this king into the city, there's no uh, army of people around him. There's just Jesus on this colt. And I was struck again after 40, almost 43 years of being saved. I was struck again by the humility of our Savior. By the humility of our Lord. Philippians 2 said he laid aside his rights. He, he, he pushed himself aside so that he could save us. And then he calls us to do the same thing. He's willing to be seen in a way that is completely unworthy of him as he comes to take our sins, our sins, not his sins, our sins on himself. And and notice how little he says here between verse 31 and verse 40. There's there's not a great speech. There's not a declaration. There's not a look at me. I'm powerful. I'm the one who's now here. I'm craving attention. I deserve praise. All of which was absolutely true. He could have pointed to himself and he could have justifiably demanded worship. Could have said, everybody bow down to me. I'm the king. I'm the son of God. I'm the savior. I'm the Messiah. I'm the authority over all of creation. Everything you see, I created with my hand. And he could have said, everybody bow down to me. But look back at it. He comes in riding a colt. Now, you say, why why a donkey? Why doesn't he ride in on a horse? Why would the Savior, why would the king come in on a young donkey? Not even an adult donkey, a young donkey. That had to make him look even less imposing than he already was. 
So I want to give you a couple reasons this morning because there are significant reasons why Jesus chose to go to Jerusalem this way. There's a reason why he goes to the cross riding on this young donkey, okay? Take some notes this morning. Let's, let's see how God works. First of all, first reason he did this was to fulfill prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, write that down. You can look at it later. The prophet Zechariah says the Messiah who would bring salvation will come to them riding on the colt of a donkey. Now one of the most convincing arguments why Jesus was not just a great teacher or a great prophet or a man with great authority was that he fulfilled 60 different Old Testament prophecies related to the Savior. Now, to fulfill five of those, all right, would be, wow, that's really, that's really pretty, pretty strong coincidence. Five prophecies, that's, that's amazing. To fulfill 10 or 15 would be really, really compelling. But Jesus fulfilled five dozen prophecies, hundreds of years old. And that's such a powerful argument why he was who he says he was. That this one who had been predicted by the prophets, the one who was foretold by Zechariah and Isaiah, there's going to be a child who's born, and he's going to be the Savior, and he's going to be from the line of David, and eventually he's going to come into Jerusalem, and he's going to ride a donkey, and he's going to be coming down to save us from our sins. You would think the people who knew the prophecies would have looked at that and said, oh, this is it. This is the moment. So Jesus fulfills prophecy. Second, would you see that the donkey was important because it was a symbol of peace. See, kings and warriors always rode horses. And that symbolized strength. It symbolized power. It symbolized war, which was exactly what the people at this point are hoping Jesus is going to bring against Rome. See, a lot of the excitement that comes around the crowds at this point comes from the expectation that Jesus is going to finally liberate them from Rome's occupation, because Israel at this point is not autonomous. They're under the power and rule of Rome, and the people desperately wanted the Romans to be removed and for the nation to be strong and self-determinant. And because Jesus had shown power and authority, he had done great miracles, he had taught like nobody else had ever heard before, and because of the inadequacy of Herod and the, the stupidity of the Pharisees who were off doing their own thing, now they look at Jesus and they say, this is our guy. This is the guy who's going to expel the Romans. This is the guy who's going to conquer them and restore us as a great nation. Because remember, in the Old Testament, Israel had been taken away into captivity. They had gone to Babylon and Assyria. So they finally are starting to come back to the nation. God's been silent for 400 years. The angels show up. They say there's a Savior born. Herod's wicked. Everything has been in turmoil. And Rome has come in and taken over and set up offices and established a government so finally here's somebody that they see with authority and they say this is our guy this is Jesus this is our king this is the one who will do this and he's going to be a great warrior and he's going to come in and he's going to challenge Rome and he's going to get Pilate and his crew out of here and we're going to defeat the most powerful nation on earth and here he comes look at it riding on a donkey The only one who can do this. But Jesus, his mission was far more expansive. 
His mission was not to defeat this kingdom. His mission was to defeat the principalities and powers of darkness that are not of this world. See, they were short-sighted. They were thinking, well, this is our guy to defeat Rome, and then we'll get back to being a nation, and we'll kind of go back to everything. But Jesus said, no, my job, my purpose is so far beyond Rome. My purpose is to defeat the devil who is keeping you in bondage that you don't see. You're seeing your physical a national bondage. I want to give you a release from spiritual bondage. And to do that, I've got to take on a power that you don't see. And the only way to do that is to become one of you. The only day to do that is to become the suffering servant. And I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to take your sins and I'm going to crucify them and defeat them forever. And in doing that, riding the animal of peace, I'm going to restore peace between God and man. So the first thing he did is fulfill prophecy. Second thing he did is to symbolize peace. The third reason Jesus rode the donkey was to identify with the people. The donkey was a common animal. Pretty much everybody had a donkey. We know the donkey's called the beast of burden, right? Because it's able to to take loads and to do things that that we don't have the strength to do. I remember when we were driving uh, about 30 years ago. I don't know. I've lost track of time. How long ago is 1990? 30 years ago? 20 years ago? Okay, good. Thank you for your help. Appreciate that. So we're driving from Jericho to Jerusalem on the road we talked about last week. And we're driving through, and we see these donkeys that are overloaded. I wish I had a picture of it. Just, you know what a donkey looks like, right? A little small horse. Well, it was overloaded probably four feet on each side with, with hay and with straw. Just, just mounded on top of it like you almost couldn't even see the donkey's body because it was so covered in hay. See, a human being can only carry so much, right? A bale or two at a time, but this donkey could carry so much. So, so it did the jobs that the human couldn't do. Now, look at how this applies to Jesus, because he not only ministered to people, he not only was a, was a man of the people who, who helped the poor and the sick and the disenfranchised, but he came to seek and to save that which is lost and to free us from the bondage of sin. Remember the old hymn, burdens are lifted at Calvary, Calvary, you know it, Calvary, burdens are lifted at Calvary, he died to set me free. Jesus comes in on this beast of burden, a man of the people, identifying with the people, And he comes to Jerusalem, not only spiritually significant that he's riding a donkey, but now he shows his identification with us because he's going to take your sin and he's going to take my sin and he's going to take that burden and that bondage and he's going to put it to death. Now, as he takes this trip, look back at it, verse 29, he takes this trip of less than two miles, you kind of come up from Jericho and you come up onto the mountain and you come around. Bethany sits on the eastern, the back side of the Mount of Olives. So you have to come around the Mount of Olives on the little road from Bethany up to the peak of the Mount of Olives, which is called Mount Scopus. 
Jesus makes that two-mile trip on this donkey riding, and as he gets to the top of the hill, the crowd starts to spread their coats out, and they start to wave palm branches, and they start to praise God joyfully, look at it, for all the miracles that they had seen. Now, despite the majority interest that, that, that hopefully this is the conquering political king, they also seem to understand that God had sent him. Now, we can't be sure because in the four texts it doesn't become abundantly clear. We can't be sure if they know that he really is the Lord. Each of the Gospels presents kind of a different angle of the scene based on who the author is and who he's writing to and and whether he was there or not because a couple of these writers weren't actually eyewitnesses to that. So here, look at the text. Luke says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They also say peace in heaven and glory in the highest, which kind of brings to mind Luke 2, right? What the angels said to the shepherds. If you look at Matthew, the crowd calls him the son of David because Matthew is written to the Jews. So the son of David was the name that, uh, that, that showed that he was the Messiah. The Messiah had to come from the line of David. So at the start of Matthew, you see the chronology that shows Jesus descending from the line of David. If you look at the book of Mark, the people say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So they also saw Jesus as setting up a physical kingdom in fulfillment of God's eternal covenant with David, which was, David, you will always have a throne in Jerusalem. So Jesus as the descendant, now they see him as coming to set up the kingdom of David, though it's not going to happen right now. So what's the point? The point is they recognize him as one sent from heaven. They recognize him as a descendant of David. They recognize him as fulfilling prophecy. And they know he is going to be a king in some capacity. They're hoping it's politically. But there's not a clear understanding of whether they really believe he's the Messiah and he's the Savior. Now, they all praise God, it says, Luke says, for the miracles they'd seen. Certainly his true disciples saw him as Jesus. But even four days later, when they're sitting at the dinner, they're they're preoccupied with themselves. And when he says, I'm the lamb, this is the Passover, I'm now becoming the lamb, they still don't quite get it. And the reason for this confusion, the reason that there wasn't a clarity with, with the opinions and the beliefs of the crowds was because the spiritual climate of the nation was confused. The religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, were proud and they were wicked. We know that because Jesus tells us they were. Jesus calls them wicked, snakes, a brood of vipers, whitewashed sepulchers. He said, you, are, you look clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're an absolute mess with sin. So because the religious leaders, because most people couldn't read, and, and the religious leaders kept the, the Torah close to them, because, because that was happening, the people were confused. Now, that's evident in how these people mock Jesus and rebuke him. And he calls out their hypocrisy. But look at verse 39, what happens next. The crowd's shouting. They're laying down their coats. They're laying down their palms. Some of the Pharisees, verse 39, in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I think they say it with a little bit more force than that. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, as I read that for the 100th, 150th time, 
as always happens with scripture, there's something that jumps out, right? Something new that the Holy Spirit will teach you. Well, look back at it because it says some of the Pharisees were in the crowd. And immediately I asked myself, why? This doesn't seem like their, their typical crowd to hang out in, right? People praising Jesus, people worshiping Jesus, people putting their coats on the ground and waving palms and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us, praise God. Thank you, Lord, for bringing Jesus. That, that's, that's not their crowd. So what are they doing there? Are they spying? They're looking for more ways to try to incriminate him and charge him with some kind of false accusation? Are, are they just waiting around to, to criticize and nitpick? How many know that that's one of the enemy's favorite ways to torture us? Just people who are around us who just criticize, who just nitpick, who just, who just make like difficult. That's discouraging, right? Pharisees were always kind of hanging around, back of the crowd, Jesus is doing miracles. People are just amazed and they're humbled and they're falling on their faces and they're trusting in him and people are joyful and happy and they're kind of standing back there like, oh, little comments, little, little conversations, little sidebars. Hey, 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 Jesus. Hey, hey, that sounds like blasphemy. Hey, hey, tell your disciples to be quiet. Now we know what their motivation was. We know that they were jealous. We know that they were scared that the tide was turning, that people weren't paying attention to them anymore. People weren't listening to them. They, they knew that this guy was dangerous to them. They're concerned about how he's exposed them spiritually. But, but like most criticisms that we face, listen now, the, these critics are not really self-aware. They're content in their sin. They're self-righteous. They're oblivious to the fact that the living God has called them out. And that's an indictment of their heart. It's an indictment of the fact that they have no spiritual authenticity. And this is a very important spiritual truth that the Lord laid on my heart this week. That, that we will understand the more we pray, the more we're emptied of self and filled with the Holy Spirit, we will understand this truth, okay? The truth is that criticism and accusation that comes from people who are proud and not walking in holiness is not of the Lord. Now, people who are proud and walking in, and not in holiness, those, those two things go hand in hand all the time. So let me say it again. When we're criticized, when we're accused by somebody who's proud, by somebody who's not walking by the Spirit, who's not living a holy life, when those people criticize us, it is not of the Lord. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, He will primarily and first do it through His Word. Then he will do it as we spend time in prayer. If we don't get it from the word and from prayer, then he'll bring direct correction that is unmistakable. A trial, a difficulty, a problem, or just straight discipline. Now, if we're not studying the word, if we're not spending time in prayer, we're not hearing his authority come through there, if we're stubbornly uh, resisting his correction, okay? So he tried to get us through the word, we're not listening. He tries to get us through prayer, we're not listening. He brings a trial into our lives, and instead of falling on our face and saying, oh God, I'm so sorry, I need to be corrected here. I've obviously done something that's offended you. Instead, we kind of put our back up and say, how dare God? When that happens, happens, God will send humble, godly people to us. And their character will be trustworthy, 
and their words will be truth in love, and they will come to us, and they will say, you are not living right, and you need to make some changes. Now, when that happens, and somebody who's godly and trustworthy, whose character is strong, comes to you, that's when you receive correction. But if somebody's just standing there criticizing you, and you know the way they live, and you know that they're proud, and you know that they're self-righteous, that is not correction from the Lord. The Lord has a process of how he corrects us, and we need to be sensitive to it. But listen, this is what happens, right? This is why the devil can be effective, is because when those people who are proud and self-righteous criticize us, it hurts us. And we get discouraged. Maybe they're right. Maybe... Maybe I am a failure. Maybe, maybe I'm not serving the Lord as effectively as I could. You know what? And then we kind of fall into our depression and our discouragement, and we become inward, and we leave the church, uh, the fellowship of the body, and we become more scarce, and we start to buy into that. We need to pray, don't we, for the discernment between criticism that the devil uses to accuse us and spiritual correction that we absolutely need to be sensitive to. You know how we'll know that? You're holding it in your hands. Get in the word. Be in the word. Study the word to show yourself approved so that when the Holy Spirit wants to correct us, it doesn't come down to a brother or sister going, "Um, there's an issue here. Because you've already learned it from the word. You've already learned it from being in the presence of God. And when maybe you weren't quite as sensitive as you should be, the Lord brought a trial and that brought you to your knees and you said, okay, Lord, okay, 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 I get it, I get it. I'm sorry. When it comes down to somebody having to come up to you and say, I'm concerned about you. Something's happened along the way that's been wrong. Now, Jesus is discerning, right? Because he's all truth. So he knows, look back at it. He knows in verse 20, uh, excuse, verse 39, that the Pharisees are not living for him. So he exposes how pathetic their criticism is. And he exposes how much more powerful he is than these weak attempts of the enemy to silence him. Because he says, listen, if there was nobody around, if this crowd wasn't here, if there weren't coats in the ground and palms in the air and people shouting Hosanna, even if that wasn't true, the rocks would be praising me. So listen, Pharisees, I know you're uptight because my disciples are praising me and I know the real bottom line is you're so full of sin that you can't handle that the Son of God is here. Well, let me just tell you, if the crowd wasn't here, creation would praise me. See, the enemy is constantly working to try to convince mankind that there's no God. But Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and apparently in the absence of a spiritual choir, so do the rocks. And the enemy is trying so hard to succeed in that, and if he can't do that, then he'll try to diminish God like we talked about last week. He'll try to persuade people that Jesus isn't worthy of trust, but creation declares it so much so that Romans 1 says, even someone that has never heard the name Jesus Christ is still accountable to God to repent and have faith simply because creation is such a convincing statement on the truth of the creator. It's interesting that someone that people consider one of the smartest minds in history, Stephen Hawking, died this week. 
Now, we don't take pleasure in his death. We don't take pleasure in the fact that we know where he is for eternity because up until his death, he arrogantly rejected with conviction the fact of God. He said a creator is, quote, not necessary. In the narrative of how the world was created, he said there's no time before the big big bang began time because time was always there. Okay, whatever. He regarded the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail and there's no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers, he said. That's a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Now, I will grant you, Stephen Hawking had a brilliant scientific mind, but his wisdom was rubbish compared to the truth of God. It's rubbish. Because to be able to have that brilliant of a mind and to be able to look at the intricacy of creation and try to explain it in a way that would elevate man and eliminate God is absolute foolishness. We are all accountable to the truth. And the Pharisees denied that Jesus was God in flesh. They tried to stop everybody from talking about it. But Jesus says, look, it's beyond your control because even the rocks know I'm Lord. Now, all of these different responses that man has to Jesus Christ are pictured here. And I want you to look back at the text one more time because Jesus rides this colt around the road from Bethany to the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem, surrounded by seven hills, okay? There's seven gentle hills, and the Mount of Olives is one of them. Right across from the eastern wall of Jerusalem, there is a wall there. It's significant. And then there's a valley that's called the Kidron Valley. It's about a 100-foot drop from the wall to the valley, okay? It's about uh, 400 yards down, okay? Then you go up the Mount of Olives, which sits straight across from the eastern side of Jerusalem. Right across from the temple is the Mount of Olives, It's about a mile and a quarter, mile and a third from the Kidron Valley, which is where the Garden of Gethsemane is, up to the Mount of Olives. And it's about a 200, 250 foot elevation change. So Jesus comes to the top of the Mount of Olives and he sits there on this donkey, on this young colt, and he's overlooking Jerusalem. The seven hills are around. Jerusalem's right before him. The temple is right there. And, and there's the, the valley that he's going to walk down through the garden where he'll be in four days, sweating blood because he's so intense with the weight of sin being put on him. And then he's going to go up the hill, 100 yards, uh, 400 yards to the, the wall of Jerusalem and enter into the temple. All right, you got the picture? So Jesus is sitting there looking over all Jerusalem. And look at what happens, verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they'll level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of visitation. Now let's deal with this quickly. This is one of two times in the Bible where Jesus cries. First one, 
was at Lazarus's tomb. The second one is here. The common denominator in both of those is a lack of faith by the people. But notice here that Jesus doesn't actually speak to the people. He speaks to the town. In fact, in four verses, he uses the personal pronoun you or your 13 times. In other words, this is a direct statement from the Son of God to Jerusalem itself. Now you say, well, that's kind of weird. Until we realize that ultimately, Jerusalem is a metaphor for mankind. Jerusalem is a picture for man. Like Israel and like Jerusalem, all people are aware of God. They can say they're not, they can say there's no God, but they are aware of it. They have seen the evidence of his power. We said Romans 1 affirms that. It's discernible and it's undeniable. Like Israel and like Jerusalem, all people are offered salvation. By God, through Jesus Christ alone, but most people choose to ignore that truth. Most people choose to reject him. And like Israel, and like Jerusalem, and they would experience this 40 years later when Titus comes in and levels Jerusalem to the ground. Like Israel, and like Jerusalem, all people will experience overthrow and spiritual destruction unless they repent. All people will experience complete annihilation unless they repent and turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ as the only Savior. Now look at how Jesus explains this and we'll pray. Look at verse 41. He says, Jerusalem, if you had only known the things that make for peace, but it's been hidden from your eyes. See, sin does that. Sin hides truth. Sin blinds the minds of people so that we'll live in pride and self-sufficiency and somehow believe that living for ourselves will bring us lasting joy and peace. But true Peace only comes from rejecting sin. True peace only comes from a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And there is no peace apart from him. So he looks at the city. He looks at the metaphor for mankind and says, if you only had known what, what makes for peace, but your minds, your hearts have been so blinded by sin. And that's why verse 44 is so important because Jesus says you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In other words, he's talking about himself. Here I am, I'm the son of God. It was announced 33 years ago when the angels came and said, unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who's Christ the Lord. I'm here now. This is the time of God's visitation. I've come to save and redeem you. And now I'm looking over this town and in five days you're going to reject me and you're going to put me to death on the cross. In five days, the same crowds that are crying, save us, save us, save us, will change and say, crucify, crucify, crucify. His blood's on our hands. Come on, Pilate, release him. We want him dead. Kill him. And you know what? We'll be accountable for it. See, that's a picture of the fleeting interest that some people have in God. When he's doing for us, oh, save us. Yeah, Lord, we want your help. But when it's not exactly what we thought and what we wanted, no, we have no use for you. This is a visitation. This is when God came and said, I've come to save you. And there has to not only be a recognition of that, listen now, but there has to be a full response of faith 
that changes our lives. See, the Lord shows his heart. Jesus weeps. Not, not just you know, one little tear coming down like, oh, I wish they had known. The word is he was bawling, weeping. You know how it is when you really cry? Like when you're just so torn apart and you just, you just can't stop and you just, you, <laughs> and you're just weeping. That's what he's doing. Picture that. Son of God, the Savior, the Lord, the God of creation, sitting on a little donkey, weeping. Not because he has to go to the cross. Not because he has to be nailed to wood. Not because he's going to be stabbed in the side. Not because people are going to spit on him and mock him. Yo, save yourself. Come on, Jesus. Pull yourself down from the cross. No, no, that's not why he's weeping. He's weeping because he knows many reject him. Many will reject salvation. But still, he joyfully goes to the cross. Joyfully. Knowing the shame, knowing the suffering. Because he knows when someone says, God, I repent of my sin. And Jesus, I trust you as my savior. That instantly that person will be redeemed. So where do you stand? You and I have seen the humble, gracious Savior who identifies us and dies in our place so we can have peace with God. And some people who believed praised him for that. But, but then there were the arrogant Pharisees who said, we don't want anything to do with it. We, we reject you. We deny you. And then there's the crowd. Inconsistent, fickle, Yes, if you give us what we want, we'll accept you. But when you don't, we'll reject you. Which one describes you? Are you a disciple? Are you a Pharisee? Or are you the town? As we begin Easter week, I want to really encourage each of us, myself included, to, to really ask that, that we would know the answer for sure because Jesus came to give us life, life that is abundant. And he went to the cross so we can be freed. So if you're a Pharisee this morning, your arms crossed spiritually, I don't know, I don't have any time for Jesus. It's not on my terms, I don't want it. I pray the Lord will really convict your heart this week and really break you of that. And if you're kind of one of the crowd, kind of going back and forth with, with the wave of emotion, I want to encourage you, now is the time to make sure that he is your Savior and your Lord and you're living for him. Let's ask the Lord to help us.